Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 17 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, May the 29th. First, I'll be talking to Carolyn Bowler, CEO of BTC Markets, the largest, most liquid Australian Bitcoin exchange, with 260,000 Australian customers trading more than $8 billion. An economist, Saul Leslake, will offer his views on where the Australian economy is heading. But now, let's talk to Carolyn Bowler. Carolyn Bowler, you BTC Markets is, I mean, you blockchain technology company, and uh, you're using blockchain technology for financial services industry. Can you tell us about it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, we are primarily a digital asset exchange based here in Melbourne. We've been around since about 2013. So we're one of the longest running, but probably one of the least well-known. We're kind of a sleeping giant. We have over 250,000 Australians have an account with ourselves. And our primary markets are in Bitcoin, BCC, which is probably one of the better known ones, along with coins such as XRP, which is for Ripple, which I'll talk about now in just a second. Ethereum and Litecoin. 
Now, while BTC, as I say, is, is the, the largest coin in, and dominates the market, I think it's got about 65% ownership of the market capitalization of globally. But XRP is an interesting one. Just when you're talking about live use cases of blockchain in the Australian financial services sector. So we as the STEM, as part of their um, on-demand liquidity partner, which involves the transferring of funds as opposed as a cross-border FX exchange. So using the XRP token, their technology combined with ourselves uses the blockchain to transmit funds in seconds and for an absolute fraction of the price that you would find elsewhere. So we're delighted to be the Australian partner for them. So who are your main clients? Well, for us, we would have a blend of, uh, I suppose, retail clients. The everyday um, average Australian would, would use our platform extensively. Um, we would also have SMSFs that would be with us. We've got a dedicated onboarding team specifically for the SMSF market. And then we had other kind of high net worth and inter-institutional kind of players. But they are you know, increasingly coming on board, but they're a smaller part of our market at the moment. I'd imagine self-managed super funds would have massive growth. I would expect so. I mean, from, from our point of view, you know, we would anticipate that SMSFs in this market would place probably about maybe 5 to 10 percent of their of their uh, portfolio in a product such as ours. And again, you know, everyone's portfolio is different and according to the risk appetite, et cetera, of their own needs. But we are a growing asset class, an exciting asset class. And there's plenty of opportunity for scale and growth if you're looking at long term investment. Do the clients uh, manage their own? funds? Yes, everyone manages their own funds. We are not a financial advisor and we're, and we're not we're not licensed to be a financial advisor in that sense. But we do help facilitate the trade of, of these cryptocurrencies and, and tokens, etc. So, I mean, how do you handle things like the volatility in the Bitcoin market? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose we differ so broadly from, from what's supposed to be more traditional markets in the sense that volatility is just part and parcel as we grow out. But if you want to talk about volatility, I think you just need to look at what happened in the oil market recently and, and seeing the damage that the derivatives did, did there. So, uh, you know, there's volatility across all kind of different market sectors. But for you know, currencies such as Bitcoin and others, volatility is just part of the game. But in that, there's opportunity. And I think if people are, are you know, get educated and, and are savvy in what they're doing, they can help. Uh, they can ride out those waves. But again, everyone's experiences and needs are different. So I wouldn't take it as advice. I mean, you've got the halving event coming up. So Bitcoin's price is swinging upwards. I mean, how do you actually are hedging that uncertainty? Well, from our point of view, I mean, it's not, not necessary for us as an exchange or as a head of an exchange for me to take a position on it per se. And I think that everyone's needs are different. But in terms of... Um, the rise in Bitcoin, I suppose for anyone who's been observing Bitcoin in the build up to having events, the two prior, it would be anticipated that there would be an uptick in price and uptick in trading in the build up to it. So it's kind of part of course, I would have thought at this stage. Okay. And uh, so how are you going to manage that? Well, for us, it's not really to manage it so much as it is for us to help facilitate it for our client base. And, you know, with the technology that we have, smooth runnings thank goodness um you know we don't anticipate there being too big an impact from our point of view we're there to you know remain open and efficient for our clients to use tell me i mean why is bitcoin being used now as a preferred payment option for merchants and money transfers and trading purposes well, I think it's, you know, Bitcoin and others, I suppose it's the liquidity, it's the fact that it's global, it's, you know, borderless, it's swift, it's efficient. There's lots of benefits to using um, a currency such as Bitcoin as a form of payment. 
Um, but it's also, you know, considered as, as a, a store of value, uh, as an investment asset too. So it's kind of got two sides to the coin, if you'll pardon the pun. Is there a fair bit of education going on from you in teaching your clients how to use it? Well, it's, I mean, the education piece that we have, I suppose, is more broadly going out to the market to try and explain. I know that there is a negative perception perhaps out there around around what digital assets um, are about. So my task is more to go out and explain the benefits that there are to, to these kind of technologies and the opportunity that lies that are therein. We're only 10 years or so into, you know, cryptocurrencies um, in existence. And in that time, what's been managed to, you know, be built around the ecosystem that's been built around it, the technology is just fantastic. And, and, and it's kind of naive to think that that genie is going back into the bottle or that this isn't going to progress, particularly if you look overseas and to see, you know, what's coming out of, say, China in terms of central bank di- digital currencies. And if you look at the legislation that's coming out of Europe through the ESMA, if you look at what's happening in the US, there's, you know, there's a building momentum behind this. There, the, you know, it's, it's reached that tipping point where it's going to go into the mainstream. So, so from my point of view, the education piece is just about explaining to people this is what's happening so that people can engage with it in a safe um, in a safe way but but i mean the issue too surely is that i mean with what's happening now in the markets worldwide uh would that have an impact on your business sure so well from our point of view uh, this is kind of you know we're here in australia we've got some other australian peers but you can trade globally you know if, if you so choose so it's entirely up to the consumer where they where they want to place their trades but but other than that you know we're just happy to be leading the innovation in the australian marketplace uh, i mean the, the the issue for traders is the market is open 24 7 that gives traders the feeling that they always have to be trading uh, that, i mean that would cause tremendous fatigue and fomo wouldn't it uh, well, I think that's up to the individual traders, how they approach it. I mean, I think if you're looking at the traditional financial markets, equally, there's the opportunity to trade 24-7 to follow the sun model around the marketplace. I, I haven't heard too many people complaining about being overstretched in, in that there's extended opportunities. Plus, as well, you know, if you're trading at depth, you can also automate your trading through. So, I mean, those options do exist. Um, but personally, no, I haven't met any traders who've complained of that, of that fatigue. What are, what are the big issues for crypto traders? that they have to get their heads around? So I suppose if for somebody coming new into the marketplace is to try and understand the different characteristics of each of their coins that you're looking to trade in um, but and, and understand some of the technical aspects of it that wouldn't necessarily be taught as of yet in kind of the trading schools. So I suppose it's getting getting familiar with those characteristics, particularly if you look, you know, not all of them are the same. They're all c- coming at it from very different points of entry. So there's lots of different things there to, to try and consider before you start dipping in. But the opportunities there, there's education pieces out there. Um, I would just advise people to go to a, a, a well-regarded exchange, particularly one perhaps if you're in Australia, one that's based in Australia would probably be my advice, simply because you know that they're regulated and overseen by Austrac, um, and that different financial products then would need licensing through ASIC. So you have that confidence security of what you would have of a, of a trad- more traditional financial institution. Right, okay. But, but there would be a fair bit of education there for a lot of uh, new players, wouldn't there? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think that's the same for any kind of financial product. If you're doing any kind of financial investment, you know, it's the onus is on us as individuals to make sure that we're educated about where we're putting our money. And, and this, that same is true for any crypto assets. But again, you know, that, that shouldn't be a reason to not get involved and, and to not start um, getting comfortable with it. I know, for instance, that looking at research that's come out, published just recently, that said in the last year, there's been a 25% growth in the number of accounts holding Bitcoin, which says that it's a retail audience that's coming in increasingly to have a look around and get used to it and get comfortable with it. 
that there's a growing recognition of it as an asset class and that it's worth exploring. So where do you, where do you see the future for Bitcoin? Oh, for me, I, I mean, I think anyone who says they can tell you the future is possibly a bit of a charlatan. But what I can say in the short to medium term is that Bitcoin um, isn't going anywhere um, and it's only increasing in its utility and increasing in its in its purpose. But I think as well as Bitcoin, there are other additional coins that are out there that are worth looking at as the whole ecosystem itself is built out. Particularly, if you, as I say, if you look at what's happening with le- legislation and regulation coming out of Europe, the ESMA are looking to build a framework that would regulate it across the entire community there. So you're looking at 27 other countries that are all going to have a shared framework and a shared approach towards cryptocurrencies. And similarly in the US, I believe the US House of Congress has over 30, over 30 pieces of legislation in front of it, the majority of which pertain to regulation of crypto. And, and people think, oh, you know, you know, crypto is a wild west. It doesn't want regulation. Anyone who's operating within the industry is crying out for this because once we have that, we have the surety and comfort so that we can offer that to our clients and build out a proper range of, of, um, of products that will suit their needs. So do you see increased regulation around it? Yes, I would anticipate very much so that there would be an increasing regulation, absolutely, worldwide. And it would have to be global regulation, wouldn't it? It would have to be done centrally. No, not at all. I think for something like this, it can be regulated per country state, absolutely how, how you deal with it and how it's executed in its own home markets. For example, if you want to use it as a you know, a form of payment in the shops, you can devise specific regulation around that. Or if you want to use it as an investment product, you can devise regulation around that. It's about exposure to, to local markets and local market conditions. So as to say, for us here, for us to develop financial products, we, we would be regulated under ASIC. So, you know, as opposed to, say, in the US, where others are regulated under different regulators, it's you know, entirely marketplace driven. Yes, and uh, and the beauty, of course, with uh, blockchain is it's completely decentralised. That's true, absolutely. The well, the asset and the trading of it, you know, the, in terms of its speed and how it can move around the world. Yes, absolutely. But that's not to say that the regulation needs to be decentralised. That can still be kind of country specific. Well, Carolyn, it's been fantastic talking to you, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Lovely. Thank you so much, Leon. Have a really lovely day. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Well, Saul, what do you make of the economy so far with the last week's appalling employment figures? Well, the Australian economy is clearly going through a very rough patch and almost certainly we are in the middle of what will turn out to have been our first recession in nearly 30 years. Uh, albeit one that's very different from the recessions we have experienced over the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, I think the government and the Reserve Bank's forecast that we'll see a contraction in economic activity from peak to trough of somewhere around 10% is broadly right. I'm more sceptical than they are that we will climb out of this trough as rapidly as we have fallen into it. I think hopes for a V-shaped recovery will turn out to be somewhat far-fetched. On the other hand, it may be that the measured unemployment rate doesn't get to the peaks of over 10% that have been forecast by some. Unfortunately, that may be more because people who lose their jobs are for a number of different reasons not counted as unemployed than because the loss of jobs will be significantly less than had been feared. But I guess if there is any good news, it is that the lockdown 
isn't going to last nearly as long as had been foreshadowed when it first began. You might remember that in mid-March, when the federal government and state premiers began progressively announcing ever tighter restrictions on the movement and gathering of people, the sense was that this would last until the end of September. And that's why many of the government support programs are timed to expire at the end of September. Whereas here we are now in mid-May and most states and territories are now gradually opening up. Of course, it remains to be seen whether as we do open up, we see renewed outbreaks of the virus, which if they became really serious, might force the reimposition of restrictions in the way that they have in a few other countries. But if we can avoid that, then eventually, come June or July, we're going to start seeing better economic data than the numbers that we saw last week, or that we're going to see over the remainder of May and into the early weeks of June. Uh, the worry with the unemployment numbers was that you had 500,000 had dropped out of the workforce, they weren't looking for work, and that would have taken the unemployment number up to 9.6%. And then you had 1.8 million Australians on JobSeeker, and that would have taken that up even further. So you're talking about recession levels or depression levels, unemployment. Well, absolutely. If you regard it as every, everyone who was not working... Uh, including those who are on JobKeeper but not working any hours, then it's fairly easy to calculate that Australia's unemployment rate would be close, would have been close to 12%. And then if you extend that further to account for people who were working but working fewer hours than they were willing and able to, then broader measures such as underemployment or underutilisation were heading up towards 20%. And they would probably be the highest since the 1930s if they were measuring concepts like underemployment back then, which, of course, they weren't. If there's any comfort at all we can take from these things, it's that our experience of unemployment has been and I think almost certainly will continue to be uh, less scarring than it has been in the United States, where arguably at least 25% of their pre-COVID workforce is now without work, uh, or even Canada, which perhaps to, somewhat to my surprise, given that Canada is usually regarded as a well-run economy with a particularly good health system, it's had a surprisingly bad experience of the virus, and uh, its economy has deteriorated almost as sharply as that of the United States, maybe because it's next door to the United States and its trade is so dependent with the United States, it's been dragged into the experience that the US economy is now undergoing. But um, as I say, I think as of mid-May, there's a reasonable basis for thinking that the trough or the bottom in economic activity isn't too far away. And although, to reiterate, I think the path out of this will be much more gradual than the path into it has been, at least from now on, we should be heading in, broadly speaking, the right direction. Uh, so when do you see the recovery happening? Well, it could be that it's actually starting to happen as we speak. 
although economic data, which always comes out with a lag, isn't going to reflect that from some time. Uh, like many other analysts, I've been looking at some of the data published, for example, by Apple and Google on people's movement, how much relative to the pre-COVID baseline people are spending at work or in transit or alternatively at home. And some of those indicators do suggest that the economy has begun to turn the corner. And uh, you can back that up by noting that these trends appear to be more favourable in states like Western Australia or the Northern Territory, where the opening up is proceeding a bit more rapidly than it is, for example, in New South Wales, Victoria or Tasmania. As I say, we're not going to get more official data on, for example, jobs or retail sales for some weeks yet. So the data that we get for May, for example, that's not going to come out for another three or four weeks, will probably be at least as bad as the data for March and April has been. There's always been a lag between what's happening and what the data say is happening. But I think perhaps more than usually has been the case, we need to be conscious of that in the way that we're describing what the economy is doing. And, uh, you know, provided people don't get foolishly optimistic, I think we can probably say that things haven't been as bad as they could have been and that we are starting to head in the right direction. There are plenty of risks between now and whenever we do get back to normal that will have to be managed. Uh, one of those is the number of government support programs and other arrangements that are currently scheduled to come to an end on the 28th of September, on the last working day of September. And if there are still a lot of people who, for example, are being supported on JobKeeper or who are drawing the coronavirus supplement and other forms of income support for people without work, uh, those programs are scheduled to come to an end at the end of September. That's when the uh, loan repayment holidays for people with mortgages and small business borrowers are meant to come to an end. Um, if all of those things do come to an end at one time, when there's still a lot of people relying on them, uh, that could be another tripwire for the economy that uh, we had best avoid. And because we have four and a half months to go until we reach that point, there is time perhaps to arrange for a more gradual tapering of some of those arrangements. There's also time, I think, for both federal and state governments to contemplate whether there ought to be some additional forms of fiscal stimulus to give the economic recovery more legs than it might otherwise have if left to its own devices. And I think there is room for the federal and state governments to act in that regard. There's less room for the Reserve Bank to do more, of course, with interest rates at rock bottom levels. Uh, so I I think we will be looking to fiscal policy again to provide additional support for the economic recovery if, as I expect, that turns out to be necessary. Uh, one final question, though, is that the great, uh, un <laughs> the great imponderable is what about China, our biggest trading partner? Uh, yes, that's certainly a complication. Indeed, just to be a little bit broader for a moment, uh, if, if you look back over the last 30 years during which Australia's managed up until now to avoid a recession, three of the things that have enabled us to do that are probably not going to be there in the post-COVID environment. The first of those is, of course, migration. 
migration has helped give us a population growth rate of about one and a half percent per annum. And that certainly made it easier to generate economic growth of two and a half percent per annum or more. And we know that migration isn't going to be coming back in any meaningful way, at least until the middle of next year. The second thing is the housing boom and the increase in wealth, which that generated, well, again, partly because of the absence of migrants who represent an important source of demand for housing, but also because there'll be a number of homeowners and investors who may find themselves unable to continue servicing their debt obligations. We may see some forced selling of property. So it's probably more likely that house prices will be falling rather than rising for a year or so after the housing market opens. And then thirdly, there is that uh, question of our economic relations with China. There's no doubt in my view that uh, Australia's economic engagement with China has contributed enormously to the economic well-being of Australians over the last 30 years, but it's left us in a point where we are now more dependent on China as an export market than any other advanced economy, and most of the emerging economies within our region, we're also more dependent on China as a source of our imports than any other advanced economy, and that bilateral relationship between Australia and China is now becoming more fraught. Uh, that's not entirely our doing, of course. The Chinese have chosen themselves to be a bit more belligerent. Um, and we may also be caught up in heightened tensions between the United States and China as a country that sees our strategic and political interests as being aligned with those of the United States rather than with China. So it may well be that some of our industries whose exports are perhaps more vulnerable to political interference than others uh, have a more uncertain outlook ahead of them, at least for another 12 to 24 months and beyond. Uh, the answer to that, I think, is for us to look to the extent that we can, and I'm not saying that this is easy, uh, to look to the extent that we can for other markets in different parts of the world to seek uh, growth in exports rather than relying as much as we have on the Chinese market in so many cases over the last two decades or so. Well, Saul, those are very, very wise words. and Thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure, Leon. And take care and stay safe. Thank you. And you too. So what's happening in the news? Well, investors have been buoyed by more glimmers of hope on COVID-19 vaccines and the further reopening of the US economy. On Wall Street, the S&P 500 now sits just 2.45% below the level seen at the start of November 2019. The month, we now know the virus first emerged in China. The gap in Australia is a little wider, with the ASX 200 down 13.3% since the start of November. Nonetheless, optimism appears to be building here. This was neatly demonstrated on Tuesday when the ASX 200 climbed 2.9% and officially emerged from a bear market. But Carmen Reinhardt, the World Bank's incoming chief economist, just declared that globalisation is probably dead and flaring trade tensions between the world's two biggest economies is supporting that theory. Without being melodramatic, COVID-19 is like the last nail in the coffin of globalisation, Reinhardt, a professor of international finance at the Harvard Kennedy School, told Bloomberg TV's Alex Steele and Michael McKee. The 2008-2009 crisis gave globalisation a big hit, as did Brexit, as did the US-China trade war, but COVID is taking it to a new level. 
At the National People's Congress, the pinnacle of its political calendar, China on Friday reiterated its commitment to implementing the Phase 1 trade deal signed with the US. The, the agreement signed in January compels it to buy goods in goals that seemed lofty even before the COVID-19 pandemic hit demand and battered supply chains. Yet, within hours, White House economic aide Kevin Hassett told CNN the US is closely studying economic penalties for China related to the nation's plan to enact sweeping national security legislation in Hong Kong. That's not all. President Donald Trump escalated his rhetoric against China over the pandemic. The Senate approved legislation that could lead to Chinese companies being barred from trading on US stock exchanges. And a retirement savings plan for federal workers deferred a plan to include Chinese stocks in its investments. Beijing's fight isn't just with Washington. Last week, it slapped anti-dumping duties on Australian barley for five years and suspended meat imports from four processing plants in the nation after the government in Canberra called for an independent investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. With China's MPC continuing this week and Trump never far away from a microphone, investors will be on the lookout for more comments to help decipher the situation. As Tom Orlick, Bloomberg's chief economist, says... With the global economy in a historic slump and growing fears of slide back into US-China trade war, the echoes of the Great Depression are getting harder to ignore. A rapid bounce back from the lockdown recession already looks tough to achieve. Add in fresh barriers to trade and capital flows and it will get even harder. And China has sought to reassure international investors that a proposed national security law that critics say gravely threatens Hong Kong's autonomy would instead improve the business environment in the Asian financial hub. Speaking a day after pro-democracy protesters returned to the streets of Hong Kong following a hiatus during the coronavirus outbreak, Xi Feng, China's foreign ministry commissioner in Hong Kong, said the proposed legal changes would restore calm following a year of unrest. The legislation will alleviate the great concern among the local and foreign business communities about the violent and terrorist forces attempting to mess up Hong Kong, Xi Feng said. It will create a more law-based, reliable and stable business environment for foreign investors. The speed of Beijing's announcement last week that it planned to impose the new legislation caught many investors by surprise and has raised concerns over the city's future as a global financial hub. The proposal to draft the law is expected to be passed by China's rubber stamp legislature on Thursday. It would prohibit secession, subversion, foreign interference, terrorism and permit China's state security services to maintain a formal presence in the semi-autonomous territory. Under the One Country, Two Systems framework, Beijing has granted civic freedoms and a high degree of autonomy to Hong Kong until 2047. According to the Basic Law, the city's mini-constitution, Hong Kong is required to implement an anti-subversion law to replace colonial legislation which was revoked when the United Kingdom handed over the territory to China in 1997. And in Australia, consumer confidence rose 0.4% to 92.7 points over the last week, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan measure. Confidence strengthened further last week, albeit modestly, said ANZ's Head of Economics, David Plank. But in a worrying sign for spending levels, confidence in future economic outlook fell by 2.4%, despite confidence in the outlook for finances rising by 3.2% and nearing its average. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison pivoted from the beleaguered JobKeeper scheme to a JobMaker plan, including a federal overhaul of a technical and further education system. 
Morrison used his National Press Club address to outline the new slogan, putting conditions on $1.5 billion in funding to states for the skills sector, such as a uniform price for training costs, and basing the number of available course places on industry need. This will see Australia's $7.7 billion training sector set for a rewriting of deals with the states and an attempt to unify public subsidies as part of an economic plan to recover from the coronavirus crisis. He also placed tax reform, deregulation and industrial relations on the agenda. He warned companies need to get off the medication of JobKeeper to get the economy out of ICU. The news comes as the Australian Financial Review reports the federal government's $160 billion overestimation of the cost of the program may cost taxpayers roughly $180 million in higher interest rates. And in a show of good faith, cooperation and negotiation needed to get JobMaker off the ground. Scott Morrison says the government will not pursue another vote of its union-busting Ensuring Integrity Bill in the Senate. He says the government will shelve the contention using union-busting laws as a sign of good faith, while pointing to an overhaul of Australia's industrial relations system. The government will not pursue a second vote on its Ensuring Integrity Bill, which was strongly opposed by unions. Mr Morrison says the current industrial relations system is not fit for purpose and the government will hold a number of consultations on the issue ahead of the October budget. Mr Morrison used a speech to the National Press Club to announce Industrial Relations Minister Christian Porter would lead a new process bringing together unions, employer groups and businesses to try to change the current system, which he said was not fit for purpose. This has seen unions and businesses signing up to a new accord-style compact with the Morrison government to negotiate an overhaul of the industrial relations system, including a revival of Keating-era enterprise bargaining that encouraged workers and employers to maximise workplace productivity and wages. And company directors and executives providing profit guides to share market investors will be relieved from continuous disclosure rules for the next six months and further insulated from class action lawsuits as the government seeks to protect business from the economic uncertainty fuelled by the coronavirus. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg announced the government will temporarily amend the Corporations Act so that companies and their officers will only be liable for continuous disclosure breaches if there is knowledge, recklessness or negligence with respect to updates on the prices of information. However, litigation funders, plaintiff lawyers and the industry super sector have condemned the changes and questioned whether consumers would be adequately protected in the rush to raise capital during the COVID-19 crisis. Labor also criticised the move and said it was worried shareholders were being put at risk. And Australia's working from home boom saw the importation of laptops and office equipment from China jump by up to 40% during the COVID-19 shutdown in April. Preliminary data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed that while imports dropped 1.33 billion or 5% to 23 billion in April, they were held up by a massive spend in office equipment including computers, printers, scanners, accounting machines and cash registers. Of note, imports of laptop computers from China remained strong in April 2020, in line with increased demand during the COVID-19 lockdown period, the ABS said. In April, imports of office machines and automatic data processing machines topped $1.43 billion, the highest amount spent since records were kept in 1988, clearly reflecting the surge in people working from home. And a survey of consumers contacted by UBS at the height of the pandemic panic in early April found household fragility was pointing to post-COVID pain. A third of consumers were bracing for a loss of working hours due to COVID-19, while 22% were expecting a reduction in wages. But more concerning, a staggering 39% said they had less than one month in buffers if they were to lose their jobs, while 63% of respondents said they had less than six months of buffers. 
the proportion of respondents who expected household income to increase plunged from 46% in the first quarter of calendar 2020 to just 35%. In addition, middle and low-income households are expected to have to take on more debt in the next 12 months. And Deakin University has announced that 400 jobs will be axed in response to the financial pressures created by the coronavirus pandemic. Deakin's announcement is likely to be a harbinger of much wider-ranging job cuts across Australia's tertiary sector. Deakin is confronting a loss of between $250 million and $300 million in revenue, mostly due to an international student shortfall. Universities Australia says the nation's universities could lose $4.6 billion in 2020 revenue due to the pandemic, with 21,000 full-time jobs likely to go. This coincides with the university staff's union plan for a national framework for a campus-by-campus wage negotiations being derailed just days before it was due to go to a ballot of all members. At least 17 universities, including the University of New South Wales, the University of Sydney, RMIT, the University of Melbourne, Deakin, Curtin, the Australian Catholic University and Central Queensland University, rejected the plan, which included a proposal for wage cuts of up to 15%. And global market turmoil caused by the coronavirus has wiped out a year's growth for Australia's pensions industry, the world's fourth biggest pot of retirement savings. Assets under management fell 7.7% to $2.73 trillion in the three months of March 31, back to almost the same level it was a year ago, Australian Prudential Regulation Authority data published Tuesday showed. That's a marked turnaround for an industry that's used to exponential growth, with 9.5% of a worker's gross salary paid into a retirement fund each month. The drop came as funds, sold stocks and boosted cash holdings in preparation to pay out billions of dollars to members allowed to access the retirement savings early under the government's emergency response to the virus. APRA regulated pension funds suffered $210.7 billion of investment losses during the period, which saw equity markets from Sydney to Hong Kong and London tumble. Despite a recovery in markets in April, the savings system is set for more falls as rising unemployment crimps the level of mandatory payments into pension funds. Funds have also paid out more than $10 billion in early access requests, with more expected. And men have withdrawn 40% more savings than women under the government's early release superannuation scheme, according to data from the Australian Taxation Office. The figures showed that people up to the age of 35 withdrew a little more than half of all assets redeemed as part of the scheme, despite representing only a third of all fund members and just 8% of all super assets. As of May the 11th, men had made 772,000 requests, 57%, to access up to $10,000 before the end of the financial year. That compared with 582,000 women. Men withdrew $6.5 billion, 40% more than the $44.6 billion accessed by women, according to the figures that were provided on notice to a parliamentary inquiry into the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Labor had raised concerns about the potential impact of the early access scheme on women, as they generally retire with less super than men. According to the Association of Superannuation Funds for Australia, the average balance for a man between the age of 55 and 64 is 333000 compared with 245000 for a woman. And the Australian tourism industry is reeling as Australian leaders are bickering over closed borders. With Australia closed to international visitors, domestic tourism is the only lifeline for an industry that's been crippled by the virus. But Queensland and other states such as Western Australia, which have largely contained the virus, maintain it's too early to allow in visitors from New South Wales and Victoria, the two most populous states that have been responsible for about 90% of Australia's new infections in the past two weeks. Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk wants New South Wales and Victoria to record no local cases of coronavirus for one month before she will reopen the state's borders to the rest of the country. 
but the state government has confirmed this benchmark could change before its monthly review of border restrictions. The engine room of the economy, the two states of Victoria and New South Wales, have kept their borders open but are still trying to contain isolated outbreaks such as recent clusters detected in a Sydney aged care home and a Melbourne meatworks. The border closures have seen a war of words break out between state and territory leaders who until recently had put aside political differences as they tackled the crisis in a national cabinet led by Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Federal health officials have consistently said that the border closures aren't necessary and the Prime Minister himself has called for an unrestricted domestic travel under a three-stage plan to reopen the economy by the end of July. But ultimately, it's an issue for state governments to decide. And Australian drinkers have assuaged fears that the coronavirus pandemic would lead to a booze-fuelled lockdown. Alcohol sales have continued to decline after an initial surge in panic buying back in March. Sales by volume plummeted by 61% in April compared with the same period last year, according to the Beverage Council. Sales were up slightly in the first two weeks of this month, but remained 32% below the same period last year. Overall, beer sales declined more than wine and spirits when pubs, clubs and bars remain closed. And Coca-Cola Amatool CEO Alison Watkins says the company is likely to cut staff if Australia falls into recession. The beverage conglomerate has taken a massive hit from stay-at-home orders and venue closures across the Asia-Pacific region, with sales slipping 33% in April from the previous year. Petrol station convenience stores were hit especially hard as sales plunged 70%. May has delivered a modest improvement for the company with sales down 26% in the first three weeks of the month. Ms Watkins said there was too much uncertainty in the economy to provide a clear outlook, but she may be in a position to provide a clearer view when the company reports its half-year results in mid-August. And Air New Zealand has confirmed it expects to report an underlying loss for the 2020 financial year, while estimating hedging losses and aircraft impairments of up to $560 million. The slimline Kiwi carrier is now 30% smaller, having cut 4,000 staff and placed 15 Boeing 777s into mothballs. The airline, which is domestic only until travel restrictions are lifted, says that the road back will be an enormous challenge, with revenues from flying likely to amount to a a small fraction of what we're accustomed to. And that's it for this week, and next week I'll be talking to LiveTiles co-founder Carl Redenbach about remote working, and I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel about the downturn in Australian property prices because of COVID-19. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBeldobZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn, and if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.